Hey, hey, welcome to the Discipleship Webcast. My name is Brooke. Uh, this evening I'm here with Robin and uh, another episode of the webcast. What is, uh, what's up for discussion What are we tonight? serving yeah. up for our tasty treats tonight? Ooh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are going to bake a beautiful pie of first things, not second things. Mm. Uh, I don't know, that analogy stalled out. I have nowhere further yeah, to take that. But yeah. we're going to talk about um, specifically looking at uh, this idea that our sense of justice has to come from an anchoring in the Imago Dei, not our ideologies. And so we're gonna we're gonna be really. Uh, it's gonna be a bit of a, a sensitive one. I'm really looking forward to it. Mm, me too. All right, we'll sit sit back and we'll be back in just a sec. I'm gonna say it all right now. And we're back with some news of the week. And what can we what can we kick off with? Well, I have some big news to share. I just posted it half an hour ago in general announcements on Discord and on Lift Church Home on Engaged Spaces. Man, we are excited to share that we are moving to in-person gatherings for all regions starting this Sunday. Huge thank you to everybody that's been working to pull this together. We're going to be going with a sort of a backyard, decentralized, highly relationship-driven approach for the rest of the summer as we continue to navigate the changing restrictions. So starting this Sunday, all of our regions will be gathering in backyards uh, to enjoy uh, our regional gatherings together. Now, all of our small regions have already been doing this. You can see this in the photos that are kind of gonna show up on the screen here. So thank you to Mohawk, York, uh, Brock, and some of the others that have helped to pioneer the ground on this. And uh, at our McMaster regions, because obviously we're way too big at a lot of our Mac regions to be able to gather in one backyard, we've designated a number of houses to the McMaster regions. In the post that I put out just a few moments ago, we detail which regions have which houses. And so connect with your Simple Church Regional Director and directions on where you should find yourself for gathering. But we're really excited about this to be able to get people together. Um, now, if you're not able to be there in person, uh, that's okay for whatever reason uh, that is. Uh, we will be doing an all regions Discord gathering right after livecast on Sundays. There'll be a host. We'll talk things through. So if you've been gathering in your region on Discord, that's going to move to an all-regions gathering, and uh, we're going to be moving to in-person for those that are able to do that. So big news. Very exciting. Yeah, lots of information. Make sure you check it out there. And uh, up next on News of the Week is Town Hall, which is happening Sunday, June 27th. So not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. Mark it in your calendar. Simple church leaders, apprentices, and district leaders, we are highly encouraged to be there. And uh, you can find more information as well in general announcements. Uh, now, excited to share that we have our first ever international church planting exploration trip team put together. So excited to introduce you to them. We have uh, Alex, Nathan, Jess, Alyssa, Joel, Nikki, and Claire. Thank you guys for stepping up to say I'm willing to consider the possibility of going uh, across the world to tell people about the hope of Jesus and so we'll have teams heading out hopefully this fall and in the spring next year. So be praying for those guys as they prepare to go. 
Wow, that's exciting. And uh, tomorrow afternoon at 12 p.m., we have our next Welcome Week brainstorming ses session. So make sure you're there just in uh, the general video there on Discord. On Canada Day, January 1st, January 1st, July 1st, big difference. Uh, we have our International Student Canada Day celebrations. There's all the event details on Engage. You can talk to Claire or Mimi. But basically, we want to help people that are new to Canada celebrate our country. And so that's happening on Canada Day. Sign up on Engage. Oh, I love that. And uh, now it's time to, to celebrate. And so kind of kicking that off, this week is the last week for The Amazing Race. So would love to hear what you guys have celebrated from this competition. Drop them in the chat. Any photos that you have? Yeah, awesome. Uh, other big celebration is uh, the months of April and May. We had consecutive months of record giving in our church family. Thank you so much. It really is incredible to see the heart of our church grow in generosity. So thank you, everybody. That's a really, really big step for our church. Mm -hmm. I also want to celebrate continuing to see church as family and really in uh, just in the area. So this past Sunday, a bunch of people played baseball together. Really cool. Uh, super awesome just to see people come over and ask more questions and uh, come for future opportunities so yeah it was awesome and uh that said we don't want to hug the celebration so we're going to pass it to isaac severin and ina who are going to do some of their own celebrations today hey church my name is severin and i'm from the gulf region how are we doing today and i'm here to celebrate abby buckle for leading us in worship and made sure that we open our hearts and all felt God's presence. And yeah. Hey, Live Church. Uh, this is Isaac here, and I'm a simple church leader at Mac Region D. And for this week, I just wanted to celebrate um, our apprentice Ashton. Uh, during the past several weeks, actually, he's done such an amazing job in uh, not only leading huddles, but also in providing great ideas uh, and how we can uh, stay accountable in our prayer lives. And yeah, I'm just really proud of. Um, all he's, all he's done for a simple church and look forward to how uh, God's gonna use you uh, in the future. I am celebrating Obria for being the first York University student to graduate the apprenticeship and become a simple church leader and just finished first year. Obria, I'm so proud of your commitment to your apprenticeship and just your heart to see people know Jesus. I'm so excited to see you make more disciples at York and lead the way for York students. <laughs> Well, I'm here with Andrew and Dan, part of our McMaster Region C. Now, Dan has really led and discipled Andrew, and Andrew's been completing his apprenticeship under uh, under Dan's leadership there in their simple church family. And uh, and now Andrew is heading to the University of Toronto, Mississauga. And uh, so, with that, Andrew, can you share what you're gonna be what you're gonna be doing at UTM and why you're excited to be doing that? Yeah. Uh, so um, what I'm going to be doing at UTM is uh, uh, I'm going to be aiding in the tilling process alongside with Shane and uh, many others as well. And uh, what, what that basically is, is laying down the groundwork for lift at UTM. So um, what I'm excited about is, uh, I guess, just like the endless possibilities that uh, will come out of tilling. Uh, so, so things like, um, well, seeing God work, uh, people coming to Christ. Um, people getting saved and, and knowing Jesus and, and having a personal relationship with that and um, just the, the fruit that's going to come out of that as well. 
um, I'm looking forward to sharing the gospel and, uh, yeah, just introducing Christ to people's lives and uh, just having deep and and, and meaningful conversations uh, along with building relationships with those different people at uh, UTM. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing, Andrew. And Dan, how are you and your Simple Church feeling now that you're Sunday, Andrew? Uh, sad. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's it's definitely bittersweet. Um, obviously, we'll miss Andrew's uh, companionship at Huddle and, and SME and, uh, and the other things that our Simple Church is involved with. Um, uh, and it's bittersweet, but obviously we're super, super filled with joy that Andrew gets to be sent um, as part of, of the mission of, of Lyft and, and the mission of our individual Simple Churches, um, that he gets to go and uh, be the church elsewhere. Um, so that's super exciting. And, and although it, it, it sucks in the temporary, um, that's something that we can uh, get over that short-term bummer because of the uh, the excitement and uh, the long-term benefit of, of him getting to go to UTM and, and build disciples there. Love that. What do you, uh, what do you and the guys in your simple church hope, um, hope and expect uh, for Andrew? What prayers do you have and, and how do you, uh, how do you hope that God will use Andrew and the team at UTM? For sure. I think um, obviously we've seen Andrew grow so much um, by being involved in our civil church. It was, it was the first civil church he joined at Lyft. And uh, um, yeah, we've just been able to journey with him as he's grown in, in, uh, in wisdom and uh, just been such a vital member of our civil church. And I think our, our hope and prayer for him with that, he um, from being involved in our civil church in our region and at Lyft uh, here in Hamilton and uh, be able to replicate that, that culture and that, um, yeah, that at, at UTM going forward. That's awesome. And Andrew, what are your hopes and prayers for the University of Toronto Mississauga campus? Uh, yeah, so um, my my hopes and prayers are, I, I guess, just simply that people would uh, uh, come to know Christ and um, just, just be saved and just to develop a, a deep and intimate relationship with Him because it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, in regards to that, that, um, that I'd be ready and, and willing to do... Uh, um, whatever it takes to make that happen, um, that uh, like fear or hesitation wouldn't wouldn't hold me back when uh, when it when it shouldn't hold me back, and uh, yeah, um, and, and I also hope and pray that for us, like the team, the the people going, um, that uh, we would just be able to have um, missional conversations and um, uh, just to have uh, yeah conversations and. Uh, just to be considerate with the, the actions we take and the things we do, um, uh, thinking about the mission and, and thinking about um, God and um, what would what would Jesus do in, in these specific moments. Um, and, yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that's been in my mind recently as well is uh, just, like, humility. Um, with, with the tilling, uh, I, there's been a lot of attention that I've been getting, and, uh, uh, you know, like, a, attention can stroke a person's ego. So my my hope and prayer is as well is that we would just uh, continue to be humble um, as, as a team. Um, and as we see God work uh, through UTM, that we would continue to give him credit and uh, glory for those things, as opposed to uh, taking it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
That's awesome, Andrew. Thanks for sharing so honestly and really pointing to that, um, pointing to that need for humility for yourself and the team and the opportunity really to take everything um, with boldness and with courage and uh, seizing every opportunity for, for mission. All right, well, uh, we definitely wanna be praying for you, Dan, Simple Church, and our UTM team. So I'll just close us in prayer here. God, I, I thank you for Dan and, and Andrew, Lord. Um, I thank you so much just for uh, just this opportunity to um, to send Andrew and to uh, take the incredible things that um, he has learned in this simple church and be able to, to replicate them um, as they lay the foundation for uh, the church at uh, UTM campus, God. We pray over this simple church um, in Maxi, and we pray for Andrew and our UTM team, Lord. I pray that, um, yeah, you would give them boldness and courage and opportunities, and I just pray that, um, yeah, that you would be glorified and that you would receive the credit and uh yeah that more people would come to know you through through this um through these steps so yeah i just thank you for andrew and dan and um yeah i pray all this in your name amen amen awesome well uh it was great uh connecting with you guys this evening and uh we will see you soon and we will kick things now over to our uh discipleship resource week All right, well, for our Discipleship Resource of the Week, wanted to share the latest uh, guide that the team has put together, summarizing our webcast teaching from a couple weeks ago on objectivity, not opinion, looking at diversity and inclusion. Now, this was an important conversation because we talked about the value of the ideas of diversity inclusion, why it's important to have diverse perspectives, and why it's important to be an inclusive people. But we also talked about why diversity and inclusion can't be goals in and of themselves for us as believers. We need to be anchored in something more firm and more secure from which we can encourage diversity and inclusivity. And so this guide helps to summarize that teaching. You can see it kind of walks you through the main ideas, the scripture that sort of supports it, and then gives some examples to help illustrate uh, the, the, the principles we were conveying. So you can, as with all of our guides, they're easily available right on engage.liftchurch.ca. Head to Discipleship Resources, and this one is the most recent one in the top left-hand corner. All right, well, that's it for Discipleship Resource of the Week, covering an important subject in our culture today and how do we navigate it as Christians. I'm going to pass it over to Adrian from Lift Church York region for our daily Devo reflection this week. Thank <music> you.
Hey church, my name is Adrian. I'm a Simple Church member in the York region, and I just want to share some of my thoughts on Genesis 21. It's so beautiful to see the fruits of God's promises come to life in this chapter for both Sarah and Abraham. For Sarah to be able to bear a son to Abraham in his old age, and for God to truly just take care of Abraham's firstborn as he was sent away. Um, it is so encouraging and so beautiful to see that our God is so faithful and such a great reminder to know that our God has no bounds. He is absolutely limitless and there is nothing that he can't do. And how powerful that is to know that that is the God that is on our side, that is leading us and guiding us. And I'm just so thankful to be reminded of this promise. Um, this passage really reminded me of one of my favorite songs that I encourage you all to listen to. Um, it's called Promises by Maverick City. And it starts off by saying, God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant and faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you said. And that, that song and those lyrics hold so, so much truth. You always come through, you always do just what you say and that there is nothing that you can't do. All right, well, welcome back to our second last session in our first things teaching, looking at good second things that make for bad first things. The principle here is that if you take something that's a good second thing and you make it a first thing, you lose the first thing, the thing that ought to be the first thing, and you lose the second thing as well. Today, I wanna to talk specifically about this idea of justice. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on justice. It was a pretty detailed, uh, dense sermon. Then talked about the passionate, loving justice that we see exemplified in Jesus and how countercultural it was. Today is really a deeper dive on some of those themes and uh, hopefully it sort of helps us orient to how we navigate, I think, a fairly challenging cultural moment where justice seems to be such an important conversation, but also a very disorienting one. There's a great book on the subject by a guy named Thaddeus Williams called Confronting Injustice. And if you would like a, a thorough biblical take on how to navigate the world that we live in today, particularly around conversations of justice, I would strongly encourage everyone in our church to read it. Thaddeus Williams, Confronting Injustice. And he has this phrase that he repeats throughout the book that I quite like. He says, God does not suggest... He commands justice. God does not suggest he commands justice. As the popular verse in Micah that people often quote goes, it says, Mankind, God has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. That is to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. The question that we need to ask here is, what is this justice? And what does it mean to act justly? <clears throat> now you see, all justice, all pursuits of justice are connected to a set of ideas. Ideas. And this leads us to our good second thing, ideology. Ideas and ideologies are important because they divide, or sorry, they provide a framework 
to interpret the world and make sense of the chaos, confusion, and division, as well as make sense of the love, beauty, and order. So ideologies or frameworks are helpful because they help us make sense of the world. Now, when I say justice, we're going to be talking about justice and the role of ideologies in justice. What I'm really talking about here is what is morally right or morally wrong in the treatment of other people. Most people, or at least most decent uh, people, would at least agree that it's good to be concerned about the moral and the right moral treatment of others. We need to be, we ought to be concerned about how people are treated and work to ensure they are treated fairly. Like, this just stands to reason, and I, I think everybody would agree with this, Christian or otherwise. And what ideas do is help us understand what ideologies do, is they help us understand how to do that. You see, the rightness or wrongness of how people are treated is based on a framework for understanding the world. How do I know what is right or what is wrong? What is good? What is justice? And what is injustice? And in this regard, ideologies are a really good second thing, or at least ideas or frameworks are a good second thing, maybe not so much ideologies. They're good second things because they help us kind of have a way of thinking about the world and understanding the world to determine what is good and right and wrong and, and so forth. However, there's a problem that we run into, and it's this. Ideologies, that is, frameworks of thinking or ideas, can very quickly become totalizing. Now, maybe that's a word you're not used to. It, when an idea becomes totalizing, it means that... What started out as a helpful approach or interpretive lens can very quickly become the only way to understand the world. And when an, when an idea becomes a totalizing idea or an ideology, it becomes the only right way to understand all issues. And in this case, we run the risk of vastly oversimplifying complex issues, therefore not really arriving at injust or at true justice, or we run the risk of completely inventing issues where there aren't issues and ignoring the real issues, again, missing real justice. So, for example, when, our, when we adopt totalizing ideologies, we actually lose the very pursuit of justice that drove us to adopt them in the first place. I'll give you an example. It is an injustice that wealthy people can use their wealth to oppress poor people. That is an injustice, and this is a helpful idea. And we can use it to understand some of the injustices of our world today. But the idea that the wealthy can use their wealth to oppress the poor can become a totalizing idea when we say that all wealthy people always oppress the poor. Now. We made a significant shift because we went from it could or it might to it always is. And this was the root of the communist ideologies that drove the 20th century into the darkest depths of depravity. We took an interesting idea that had some truth in it and it became totalizing. And very quickly, instead of it becoming a means towards justice, became a means of absolutely abhorrent injustice. I'll give you another example. Men, in many cases, have disproportionately leveraged power over women. That has happened. 
And this can be a helpful idea to assess where men and women have inequalities or there's injustice at play in the relationship between the sexes. And therefore aid our pursuit of justice to say, hey, like where have men uh, disproportionately leveraged power against women? However, this idea becomes a totalizing idea when we conclude that male dominance is the root of all inequality, which is just absurd. It's a baseless idea and unjustifiable, unjustifiable and profoundly destructive because it forces the demonization of all men by all other people, right? So an idea that started off maybe as a helpful interpretive lens became a totalizing idea and actually destroyed the pursuit of justice or can destroy the pursuit of justice. You see, when a framework becomes the defining characteristic of justice or when an ideology or a set of ideas become the defining characteristic of justice, we become confused about what to truly value. Do we value the people or do we value the ideas? And when we become confused about what to value, our pursuit of justice is lost. And this leads me to the core question for today. Does our pursuit of justice in, an, in allegiance to ideologies result in a vision of justice that prioritizes ideas over people? Does our allegiance to ideologies result in a vision of justice that prioritizes ideas or ideologies over people? You see, the ideas that anchor our pursuit of justice are profoundly important. But if we make human ideas the foundation of our pursuit of justice, we will end up with a sinful, broken, and myopic or short-sighted vision of justice that arises or comes from our sinful, broken, and myopic perspective on the world. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, but I want to draw three primary things that need to take first place. Three things that arise from the pages of Scripture and the throne of Jesus that allows us to be assured that we have properly understood a vision of justice that places first things first. Now, maybe you think I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill or being muddled here, but when we make ideas paramount, not the vision of justice that comes from Scripture and the critique on human nature that comes from Scripture, we will end up hurting people. If we truly, as Christians, truly want to pursue justice and truly want to love people, we must start from the pages of Scripture not our human ideologies or frameworks. I cannot say that any more clearly. So what's, where do we start? Number one, we must start with the sovereignty of God. All justice is the Lord's. Now you see, the sense of justice that we have, the sense of injustice when something is wrong, is written on our hearts. In Ecclesiastes, it says that eternity is written on our hearts. I think every person to a certain degree has a natural understanding of justice or a moral or a natural moral compass that we intrinsically understand. But the source of that moral compass or that uh, natural law is not ourselves. Rather, God has imprinted on us 
at least some aspect of his understanding of justice. The moral authority and compass for our lives must originate not in our sinful hearts, therefore. It must originate in the one who imprints it on us in the first place, God himself, him and him alone. You see, because justice and morality go hand in hand, if we define our own morality instead of deriving our morality or our sense of justice from God, we will be able to define justice as fulfilling whatever, whatever fits our morality or personal ethic. Let me say that again. If we define our sense of justice based on our own sense of morality rather than looking to God, then each of us is going to come to a different conclusion of what justice is. You see, justice flows from morality, and morality flows from the heart of God, and the intent of God is outlined in Scripture. Justice that does not flow from the morality of God, justice that does not throw from the, flow from the ethic of God, is not justice. It cannot be, because justice defi is defined as in alignment with God. This is very problematic for our culture because for a society that prides itself on justice, if every person can determine what is moral for themselves, how can we possibly arrive at a unified societal picture of what is just? How can two people who have self-determined what is good and moral and right possibly agree on what is just? We need a standard, and that standard is God. The second implication of the sovereignty of God is the fact that in the pursuit of justice, all of us are sinful. Our pursuit of justice must start from the recognition of the injustice that exists in ourselves, in you and in I. And the greatest injustice of all injustices is that God does not receive what is rightfully his. When we take the worship, glory, and honor that belong to the creator God of the universe and claim it for ourselves, that is the greatest injustice. And all of us have done that. All have sinned, as it says in Romans, and fallen short of the glory of God. Why is that important? Because it means that none of us can be self-righteous in our pursuit of justice. None of us can come to the pursuit of what is morally right and just for the world as innocent people or justified in ourselves. I am not a just person in myself. I have committed the great injustice by robbing God of glory. I am guilty of that. Therefore, I cannot self-righteously point the finger at other people who have committed injustice until I have first reconciled with the fact that I have committed injustice. The Christian vision of justice forces us to first look in the mirror. We must first adopt a posture of humility in our pursuit of justice. Now, the implication of the fact that all of us are sinners means that none of us can justify ourselves, can be made right, can fix the fact that we have committed an injustice by ourselves. And the pursuit of justice by itself doesn't make you a good person because you have already committed the injustice 
of stealing God's glory. Our good deeds, our good pursuits of justice do not make us good or better people. We are not good people. And we need to face that fact that our goodness does not come from our actions, but rather we have to acknowledge before the throne of a holy God that I am sinful. And there's nothing I can do to fix that apart from his grace. You see, this protects us from the tendency to demonize those that disagree with us or view ourselves as superior. We are not superior, especially as Christians. I am not better than any other person. I am a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus because I have offended his glory. And my pursuit of justice has to start by first humbling myself before his throne and saying, God, who are you and what is your definition of justice that I have offended? Not point the finger at others and scream at them self-righteously. So that's the first starting point. We must start with the sovereignty of God. Otherwise, we will end up self-righteous. Number two, we must start with the value of every single person. The baseline of our pursuit of justice must be the intrinsic value of every single person as a precious image bearer of the creator God of the universe. Genesis chapter 1 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it sets out the purpose of God in creating humanity, in creating humanity, which was to bear his image. Every person, it doesn't matter your age, stage, ethnicity, economic status, sexual status, uh, relationship status, career status, possession status, every person has an unimaginably precious and glorious value because it was assigned to them, not by me, but by their creator. And I'm going to speak quite frankly here. It's this basic and essential and vitally important idea that serves as the basis for all true justice is radically under attack. And it's under attack in the name of justice. The value and precious worth of every human being is being challenged today. How is that? Well, you see, when our allegiance is to an idea and we become loyal to a set of ideas, the very first thing to go as we seek to defend our idea is the validity or the personhood of the person who disagrees with us. When we are loyal to ideas, we become defenders of ideas rather than defenders of the value of every person as an image bearer of God. And our world is being wrapped up into defending broken ideas. Under the guise of justice, the popular and uh, popular, especially in, in academic circles, but what are basically pseudoscientific ideas, 
the pseudoscientific ideas of uh, the critical theory, gender theory, um, and, and a lot of the other sort of ideas circling around them. What they do, what these ideas are doing that are being popularized in our world and are really flowing out of academia are creating a structure where the ideas serve to demonize or devalue other people. Now, I've taught at length on this last summer, but this is the basic problem. Critical theory, for example, essentially dismantles the intrinsic value of all people by making people morally culpable and guilty for the actions of their group, regardless of the personal actions of the person. And more insidiously, it justifies the demonizing of those who happen to have the wrong gender, skin color, or sexual predisposition. People become demonized because of their group affiliation and therefore morally reprehensible actions such as uh, anger, resentment, bitterness, canceling, um, shouting on social media, screaming, demonizing, these are reprehensible ideas because they attack the value of the person. And critical theory justifies that morally reprehensible behavior. You see, when our vision of justice requires allegiance to ideas, and the ideas are what justice is defining as rather than the value of all people, reconciliation between two groups of people requires allegiance to the ideas. And if there isn't allegiance to the ideas, people will be canceled. Do you see how destructive the vision of justice then is in our world today? If you don't agree with me, then I can cancel you. How is that justice? That is nothing but hate because it devalues the value of the person that disagrees with you or me or anyone else. Every person has intrinsic and unshakable worth and that worth is not based on their agreement with me. It is because God has given it to them. Maybe you think, Robin, come on, this is, this, is, this is just a cultural moment. I want to show you how insidious some of this stuff is. There's a, a very popular writer, her name's Gloria Watkins, and um, this, some of this came from, from Thaddeus's book, helped me understand it a little bit better. But she was a, a Yale faculty. She's written quite a bit. Uh, hugely influential um, feminist. She coined the, the phrase white uh, supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which is just like a, it's like buzzword bingo there. And she wrote an article called Killing Rage. And in this article called Killing Rage, she tells a story of how she had, had an interaction with this, this, this man, and she really hates men. And uh, the man had done nothing wrong in the, in, the, in the interaction and quite obviously had done nothing wrong, and she even recognizes that she had done nothing wrong. But because of her worldview that was pursuing justice, she wrote this. She said, quote, I felt a killing rage. Now, this is, a, this is Yale faculty, hugely influential. She wrote this. I, I felt a killing rage. I wanted to stab him softly, to shoot him with the gun I wished I had in my purse. 
her vision of justice, and she wrote this in The Pursuit of Justice, picked up by major publications, required that rather than champion the intrinsic worth of every person, she championed her particularly ideologically driven vision of justice that allowed her to diminish the worth of another precious image bearer. Now, this isn't just the one side of the political spectrum. This is playing out all over our world today. On the other side of the, the political spectrum, you had a delusional maniac drive a vehicle into a family of innocent Muslims in London last week. Also, precious image bearers in a misguided pursuit of some sort of ethnic justice. That's wrong and evil. Our ideas, when they allow us to demonize other people, will never arrive at a true pursuit of justice. If our vision of justice does not unwaveringly affirm the value of every person independent of their behavior, actions, ethnicity, beliefs, and so forth, independent of every fact, simply because they're a human being, they have value. If our vision of justice doesn't affirm that, then it is not justice. And yet it is the justice that I see all over the world today, ideologically driven. This is essentially exactly what's playing out in the abortion debate. In the abortion debate, what has happened is that in the pursuit of an ideology, well, what's the first thing that happens in the abortion debate? We dehumanize that which is scientifically human in the pursuit of an idea. Why? So that we can justify our particular vision of justice. The abortion debate requires the dehumanizing of that which is human in its pursuit of justice. Therefore, it cannot be justice. Isn't it ironic that the greatest pursuits of justice, when they become unmoored from the value of every human being, from conception to death, become not the propagators of justice, but the propagators of the greatest injustices in human history. In the case of abortion, hundreds of millions of image bearers have died. What I observe is that many of the pursuits of justice in our world today result in anger, hatred. Does our desire for justice make us angry? Because that's the fruit that I'm seeing in our world. A pursuit of justice that is resulting in greater and greater anger. What are we to do? Church, we are to weep. We are to mourn. Because we have image bearers harming image bearers in the ideological driven pursuit of justice. And we must repent, all of us, of our tendency to hold onto ideas at the expense of people. 
Jesus commands us. He does not suggest. He does not um, make the, uh, the the implication or the posit the idea. No, he commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us so that we may be children of our Father in heaven because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why? Because he is just, because everyone's an image bearer. Why are we compelled to love those that disagree with us? Why are we compelled to love the enemies? Because they are image bearers, precious image bearers. Why are we called to pray for those who persecute us? Because they are unimaginably precious bearing the image of God on every atom of their being. As I said, Jesus does not suggest, he commands that we love our enemies. This is the Christian vision of justice that has as its hallmark love. Not love based on agreement, not love based on unity, not love based on sameness, love based on the self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-championing love of Jesus. Because at the core, the Christian vision of justice is rooted in the value of every human being. We must love people, not our ideas. That is why Valuing people, cherishing people does not mean affirming all ideas or beliefs. We must commit to loving people, championing idea, loving people and championing the narrow way of Jesus. That requires that we love people, not because they agree with us, but because they're valuable. We must hold to the narrow vision of justice as outlined in scripture while simultaneously committing to loving widely every person on this planet. We must invite people to enter through the narrow gate, as it says in Matthew 7, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. But we must love nonetheless. Finally, the third thing on justice. Firstly, biblical justice must flow from the sovereignty of God. It must flow from the intrinsic value of every person. And number three, biblical justice flows from forgiveness. We are to love our enemies while they are still our enemies. You see, Christian justice requires forgiveness it requires forgiveness. But the pursuit of justice in the absence of forgiveness requires retribution, anger, and resentment. All of us have been wronged. And it's that sense of wronged, being wronged, that makes us crave justice. But the pursuit of that justice, like the desire for justice comes from being wronged, or at least the desire to want justice to come often is connected to us being hurt or wronged or offended even very deeply. But what do we do with that desire for justice? We must look to Jesus. We must draw our vision of how to pursue justice 
from the justice that we have received for ourselves in Jesus. And the justice we have received from Jesus was modeled in him giving himself for us on the cross. It was modeled in his forgiveness. No matter the wrong, no matter the grievances, the path to justice lies in the fruitful fields of forgiveness instead of the barren plains of resentment and anger. Now make no mistake, the fruit of forgiveness does not come cheap and it does not come easy. Our forgiveness in Christ cost him his life executed on the cross. But if we want justice, we must do the hard work of forgiveness. Rather than me teaching on this at length, I want to read you a story. It comes from a Christian that was in a Nazi computation camp, uh, concentration camp with her sister. And she was delivering a, a presentation years after she came out of the concentration camp where her sister had died. And as she did the presentation, afterwards, uh, a former Nazi came up to her and she describes the interaction with this. And says, quote, Betsy and I have been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi, Nazi occupation of Holland. This man, the man that she was interacting with, had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. He said, quote, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. End quote. Corrie ten Boomer continues, she says, and I who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook to take the hand. The guard continued, he said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. He said, I was the guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? She says, and I, and I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase the slow, terrible death simply for asking? I could not have been many seconds that it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will I or your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it was not only a commandment of God, but a daily experience. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies 
were also to return to the outside world to rebuild their lives no matter what the scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with my coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must, Jesus, supply the feeling. And woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the other stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I have never known God's love so intensely as I did then. End quote. That's the Christian vision of justice. Our culture is breeding hate on hate. And that it attempts to activate that hate in the pursuit of justice. It will not work. Hatred between sexes, ethnicities, minorities, and so forth. The Christian way comes humbly before the throne of God, saying, Jesus, I need you. It comes by affirming the value of every person, the prisoner and the guard. And it comes by forgiving. Our culture thrives on division. The way of Jesus thrives on reconciliation and forgiveness. Justice requires forgiveness. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And we have a message of hope to bring to our world. And oh, that we would unshakably and unwaveringly profess it. Refusing to buy into the narrative that there are some people who are valuable and there are others who are not. All people. Refusing to buy into the narrative that people must agree to be forgiven, they must not. And most importantly, releasing the own grief, our own grievances, our own hatred, our own resentment, and our own bitterness, that we as individuals might begin to live the kind of justice that Jesus has given to us in freely forgiving us. Guys, I hope that that helps. It's a little leaky over here. If I'm honest, I'm leaky because I know that there are many in our church who need to see this love that Jesus has for them. And that our church would be marked by this kind of love for our world. We'll take a quick break and we'll be into Q&A. Brooke will join me 
And uh, so you can get your questions in the chat. We'll be right back, guys. Thanks. still kind of digesting uh, <laughs> that uh, teaching. Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot there. Yeah, there was. I was, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was uh, like weeping over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, people are already kind of, um, yeah, dropping some questions here. Um, so I guess we can just start off with Laura's here. Do you have any recommendations for implementing critique thinking from an academic standpoint here without it crossing the line to hate? Uh, since you can't help solve a problem that isn't being addressed, yet the frameworks available are not from a Christ, uh, Christocentric lens, how can we try and bring a confident yet loving response? Yeah, I think, Laura, we desperately need people that are, um, I think, willing to engage the particularly the humanities where a lot of these ideas that are so <laughs> profoundly destructive are originating. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a few suggestions that I might offer and I offer them humbly because it's a really difficult place. And Laura, my wife and I, um, you know, since she did graduate school in the humanities, it was not an easy place. But a few thoughts. I think one is I think we need to, to fairly and honestly critique totalizing ideas. So when an idea becomes an interpretive framework for everything or an explanation for everything, that is a really, really dangerous uh, position to be in. 
So one of the ways that we can critique is by calling out a totalizing idea to say, hey, there's probably more nuance here. Um, and I think fight for, for that, that, hey, let, let's, not, let's not oversimplify. Let's make sure that we're getting to the root of the issues. Let's not uh, take just one look on things. Let's, let's consider the many multifaceted angles of how things are explained in our world. That's one way. The other way, I think, is that we need to, I think what we can offer as Christians, particularly into the academic world, is the protecting of the value of every person. And I think helping people identify where a, uh, an idea is resulting in the demonizing or the devaluing of other people. Now, it's important that as Christians we remember that the value of people is not based on our agreement with them, um, but it's based on an intrinsic part of who they are, uh, just the fact that they're human. And so trying to identify where ideas are um, like dehumanizing or devaluing would be, I think, two ways do it. So one, call out the, to the totalizing uh, propensity, and two, call out the devaluing propensity of these ideas. So I, I hope that answers your question. I'm not sure if, I'm, if you meant it in the inverse of how I'm answering it, but let me know and if that helps. Um, uh, yeah, uh, just seeing if this is a question. I think it is from Gordon. Um, so just commenting on a video of Corey uh, Tan Boom telling that story is used in the Alpha Course, and I was interested that a non-Christian in the group felt that kind of forgiveness was wrong. How can we advocate for forgiveness when the importance of forgiveness is no longer self-evident? That's a really good point, and uh, it's quite a common thing, Gordon, to see people look at Christian forgiveness and say that it's um, that it's wrong, that you can't just forgive. Um, I would say that that's largely uh, related to a misunderstanding of Christian forgiveness, which is that we're not denying the wrongness of the action. We are relinquishing our claim over the person for what that wrong did. So it's not saying what they did was okay. It's saying, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to claim it against you. I'm going to release the debt that you owe to me. And this is the thing with forgiveness. For forgiveness to work, the wronged party, the person who is owed the debt, must release the debt. And it's profoundly liberating. I would say one powerful example that we can point to here is actually the story of South Africa. Um, Nelson Mandela, when he came to power, um, built his, his campaign uh, coming out of apartheid on forgiveness. And he basically said as uh, for the 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 predominant black populations in South Africa that were oppressed for more than 50 years under apartheid formally, he basically said, we release the debt. Um, and it was a, like you want, that's like generational evil. And his whole campaign was, we release the debt. We release the claim on it, true forgiveness. And what he did in doing that was prevented a civil war in South Africa. Um, and which would have resulted in the catastrophic loss of life for probably millions of people. Um, now, what happened in South Africa was wrong, but the only way out of it was forgiveness. And so if somebody could suggest a better version of how that could have panned out without the kind of forgiveness. Now, Mandela wasn't a Christian, but he certainly modeled it really well in that case. So there's a, a strong historical systemic example of how forgiveness can function. Hmm. Uh, that is helpful. Uh, if we find ourselves in a position where we are valuing an ideology, 
ideology over a person, especially if that ideology is deep-rooted, how do we push it aside to show love? And do we ignore our convictions that are connected to that or continue to address it? Uh, very vague, so I hope it makes sense. Um, I, I think what we need to do is we need to first start with affirming the value of every person. Mm -hmm. And if we see in ourselves a desire to um, push someone away because they disagree with us, or even push them away because of our uh, desire to protect our convictions, we're, de we're de demeaning them, we're devaluing them. Mm -hmm. And so what we can use as a check in our hearts is, do I want to push this person away or devalue them to, to protect myself? That's, uh, I think, a really, really dangerous idea. It's not that we ignore our convictions. We can contend for what is true or what is right while simultaneously affirming the value of another person that disagrees with us. And so uh, I would say just check our hearts on that, that tension. So. Um, okay. Um, yeah, just jumping down here, uh, Adam's question. What if we charitably critique an ideology, but then the person we are talking to then argues that Christianity is a totalizing ideology um tips on how to answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think that's an interesting point adam in a way like christianity is a totalizing ideology um not in a way it is like it is a it is a comprehensive framework for understanding uh the world and um i think this is the thing with ideologies is that uh they tend to always be totalizing um the thing is the que the question is is it accurate um, and so the, the pushback that I would put there is I would say Christianity is a better understanding of the human condition. It is a better understanding of the world. It is a better take on human nature and it better handles the nuances and the distinctions uh, and provides in the ability to not look at things through one lens only, but it's inherently multifaceted. So um, I would say at that point it becomes a, well, let's, let's talk about why Christianity is a better worldview really hmm. um, and that could be a really interesting conversation hmm. um, and at the core of it I would say is what does it mean to be human um, and that's often what these ideas boil down to is what does it mean to be human and you want to talk about ideas the Christian vision of what it means to be human is profoundly beautiful so yeah all right, a uh, couple questions uh, here. Uh, okay, from Shane. How do we communicate and walk through that God, uh, that godly justice requires forgiveness to those that have been wronged and hurt in the past? When I clearly see that this is the only way to seek justice, but those around me do not, it just breaks my heart. Uh, both the context of Christians and non-Christians. I think it starts with Jesus, Shane. Um, we have to look at, and I think this is why what I was talking about before, like the pursuit of justice has to start with the sovereignty of God. Because when we start with the sovereignty of God, it makes us self-aware of our own, um, the fact that we are committers of injustice. And I think that we can't really reconcile or understand the notion of forgiveness until we've understood that we have been forgiven. The Christian power of forgiveness is rooted in the fact that we have been forgiven. And so I would say the best starting place is to go back to the fact that Christ has forgiven us. And so it goes back to the basics of the gospel. Hmm. Okay. Uh, can you give some super practical ways we can engage with the injustices we see in the world in ways that fundamentally values the people? Yeah, for sure, Dan. That's a great, great suggestion. No, uh, I think 
the first way that we can do that is for the church to be the church, mm. um, to be present in the world, meeting the needs of real people in real ways, tangibly and practically, um, to start with our homes. Uh, I think one of the greatest injustices we commit is with our homes. Uh, our homes become bastions of our selfish lifestyles as opposed to openness to receive and love those who are lost and broken. Mm. So. Our pursuit of justice has to start first with ourselves before the throne of God. Then it needs to work out from there to our homes, our communities, or our homes, our church family, our communities, and so forth. But what a lot of people want to do in their pursuit of justice is they want to bypass it and start at the top. They want to start at the systemic ideological level without having done the hard work of working through from their hearts going outwards. And so it becomes profoundly self-righteous. And so... What we need to do is start small and work out using the church as, I believe, the, the, the best starting place for our pursuit of justice. Um, so I would say for a lot of people, like, this is what SME is about, strategic mission engagement, serving and addressing the injustices of the world. How? Not by campaigning, but by demonstrating that we love all people mm. and affirm the value of all people. And so that would be a good place to start uh, is engaging with where your church family is engaging those to tell them that they're loved. So go from there. So good. A couple others are typing right now, but yeah, fighting injustice with open homes and SME. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Could probably leave it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots yeah. for people to chew on tonight. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, love you guys. I pray you receive that well. Came from my heart and uh, always yeah. does. But And uh, we'll see you on Sunday. Uh, yes. Hopefully in person at one of the gatherings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, check the information uh, on the post there general announcements, and uh, on Engage as well. And missionaries in training, we'll see you at training on Saturday morning. So love you guys. Be blessed and have a good week.